The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Means another day with you. Hello, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn. I'm a registered dietitian and an investigative nutritionist, and I'm on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture. I am here today with Dr. Don Lauder. Uh, Don, thank you so much. Uh, you have recently had a wonderful two-part paper published in the International Journal of the Sociology of Agriculture and Food, uh, called The Genetic Engineering of Food and the Failure of Science, Part 1. And then you have another part which questions the relationship between universities and, I guess, public-private partnerships called Genetic Engineering of Food and the Failure of Science, Academic Capitalism and the Loss of Scientific Integrity. So I'm thrilled that you're here with me today. Yeah, thank you. Glad to be here. Well, now let's see, Don. First, let's talk about your background. Um, you have a Ph.D. in agroecology, so we should probably explain to our listeners what is agroecology. Yeah, okay. Well, my Ph.D. is in agroecology from University of California, Davis, uh, which is an agricultural school. Basically, agroecology is, is the ecology of agriculture, and, and, and all of agriculture is basically ecological. It's basically we have... We, we engineer nature or we, we devise ways of getting food uh, from nature. And so um, the, what agroecology does is different from the tradition, from the, the, the sort of modern agriculture that was developed is, is that we uh, first go with ecological principles to, to get the food uh, and crops uh, growing and then we might use some um, chemical methods. Of course, what what I grew up with and, and agriculture of the last you know, 50 years has been very uh, has been sort of uh, chemically based. What we're trying to do is put agriculture on the footing uh, on an agroecology footing, which is really the basis of all of our our food systems and crop systems. The way I understand ecology, or the way I try to describe. Um, I try to promote ecological literacy as I, I explain that with ecology, we understand that all things are connected. And um, from my work in nutrition and, and dietetics and trying to link food, health, and agriculture together, I try to help people understand that we all live downstream, that all systems are interconnected. And working with nature rather than trying to fight her seems to be the best approach what do you think about that? Yeah, that's what we do. So, for example, uh, if a crop, if your food crop is being eaten by a pest, by an insect pest, what we do is we go out and learn the life cycle of that pest. And very often, in fact, most of the time, we can find a way of, of controlling that pest uh, ecologically, such as um, taking away a host weed or plant that's around the field that it depends on, or culturing or, or nurturing its natural enemies uh, by growing certain plants that support its natural enemies, uh, other insects that are natural enemies, and the in these insects come in and, and control that pest. 
And we've found that uh, in most of the cases in, in pest management, we can control the insect pest that way instead of having to spray. And so when you spray, then you, when you're downstream, in other words, residues, you know, the, the spray residues on the food or the spray gets into the rivers, it affects the, the wildlife, you know, fish, and, and amphibians are very sensitive to pesticides. So we can avoid a lot of that. We can probably cut down um, or, or eliminate about 80 to 90 percent of the sprays of the pesticides that we spray uh, in agriculture now by using agroecological methods. And so there's a lot of us really working to implement that. So tell me a little bit about your research, and then we'll get into the two-part paper that you submitted. I know you did work um, both as an undergraduate and then a graduate. Tell me about your undergraduate research, and then what led you to your graduate research. Well, in, in my undergraduate degree and my, and my master's degree, I did international agriculture. I went uh, as an undergraduate down to the, one of the Green Revolution Centers down in Colombia, the International Center for Tropical Agriculture, uh, known as CIAT in Cali, Colombia, and I worked on uh, bean in the bean program there. And then later I worked on beans down in, um, with the Mayan farmers in Guatemala. And then for my Ph.D. work, I, I worked on um, vineyards, and I, and I looked at organically managed vineyards and conventionally managed vineyards, conventionally being they were sprayed and chemically fertilized. And the organically managed vineyards were better able to withstand this pest, the, the, the grape phylloxera, which is an insect that damages the roots. And these organically managed vineyards were surviving for a longer, for uh, substantially longer, and they had less rot on their roots because they were able to resist the damage that's done by the by the insect and by the pathogens, the fungal pathogens that come into the root, with when the, the root is damaged by the insect. And I remember um, prior to this interview, we were, we had been talking about resveratrol, which is in certainly spoken about in among dietitians because it's one of these beneficial antioxidant. Um, nutrients, you could say, that are found in grapes and seem to be protective against a whole host of illnesses that we try to prevent, such as Alzheimer's disease and heart disease and cancer. And you had mentioned that the levels of resveratrol were higher in the organically produced grapes and wine. Yeah, basically resveratrol, what people don't, I think what many journalists don't realize when they write about resveratrol and in wines, in red wines and grapes, and and other fruits too, is that resveratrol is a defense compound. The plant is not just producing it for us to, you know, have better health. It's producing it because it needs to defend itself against microbial attack. So what they've found is that when plants are sprayed with fungicide to reduce molds and and fungal diseases, then the plant doesn't have to defend itself and then it doesn't produce this resveratrol. And so what they found was that, and I didn't do this research, this is just research that uh, related to my research, what they found was that these unsprayed plants were had much higher levels of resveratrol. And so other research has found that organically produced foods are higher in these, in these antioxidants that, 
They're not really nutrients, but they're beneficial compounds. Right, right. You know, it's interesting. I, I was just in West Virginia, and I was talking about organics and the benefits of organically produced food, and one of the audience members said, well, are there any studies showing that organically produced food is more nutritious? And um, this this absolutely gets to the answer to that individual's question. That And not a lot of research has been done and published about the benefits of these organically produced foods. But but if we are promoting the the ability of the plant to produce these beneficial compounds by not spraying them, it would seem to me that it wouldn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that organically raised food is indeed more nutritious. Yeah. Now, this gets into a couple of issues having to do with the, the genetic engineering because Great. Um, we know that by, by growing things organically, we get higher levels of these, these beneficial antioxidants like resveratrol. But, of course, what they do in the industry is to um, isolate the gene that produces that, and then they, there are people trying to you know, genetically engineer the, the genes for these compounds Right. into plants and produce them. And so we have a real difference here between, you know, do we want foods grown in which the plant naturally produces these defense compounds, these beneficial compounds, or do we want these proprietary crops that are genetically engineered to produce these things? But we, but of course, what this paper, what I'll be talking about a little in a little bit is that there are many, many health problems with the genetic engineering and not just with the compound that's produced, but with these proteins, what we call rogue proteins, novel proteins, allergens, uh, produced in the in the genetic engineering process. So, and that's uh, and that's the subject, of course, of your most recently published paper, uh, the genetic engineering of food and the failure of science. Let's start with part one. Um, you know, we we talk a lot about these GM foods, and you know, from a dietitian's perspective for people who want to avoid them for whatever reason, concerns that they've never been tested for long-term safety in the environment or in public health. They're not labeled as such, with the exception of if you buy, I I tell people if you want to avoid GM foods, the thing to do is look for the organic label because that's your best guarantee that they don't contain genetically modified ingredients. But tell me about your research and tell me what your concerns are. Well, I did a review paper, so I didn't actually, you know, do laboratory research on this, but I, I took all of the research. Most of it, was, of it is coming from Europe. The vast majority of the research that's been coming out on, I mean, really revealing research on genetically engineered foods is coming out of Europe, uh, Italy, Germany, Scandinavian countries, France. American scientists have really pretty much abdicated on, on this issue. So what they're finding is that there are serious Flaws and and the the title of the part one of the paper is the development of a de, uh, development of flawed enterprise. What they found, I mean, they've had there've been a number of incidents that have occurred over the uh, in the last twenty years, indicating that there were some problems with with tra- these transgenic foods. But really, what pushed me over the the edge on this was a paper that came out of the UK by British scientists. Uh, again, a review paper entitled The Mutational Consequences of Plant Transformation or, or of Genetic Engineering of Plants. And they talk about the research that's been done showing these mutations that occur when genes are spliced into the plant. And they do this splicing via a couple of different ways using a 
a bacterium is one way, and then other another way is they simply shoot the genes in using a, a gene gun with DNA-coated metal particles. And both of these methods damage the, the DNA of the plant and cause mutations, both at the, at the site of insertion and away from the site of insertion in, in the genome. And they've never really looked at this and characterized it. They, uh, the scientists were so uh, enamored of the vision of feeding the world with these genetically engineered crops and making huge profit. They never really uh, looked at it. And there are a few reasons for that that, um, I don't know, shall I go back to, should I sort of summarize how that developed, how that situation developed? Oh, absolutely. Um, but I just want to, I just want to mention something here about the whole issue of hunger and profits. Uh, you know, the last time I checked, uh, we have not solved the hunger problem. In fact, it has increasingly gotten worse. Um, but the profits of the companies that are producing these genetically modified seeds are indeed increasing. Yeah, although recently there has, there's a report that came out that we can talk about a little bit later about how world hunger can be addressed without the, the need of these transgenic crops. That sounds great. So, but basically, the, the way this, the industry developed, the way this enterprise developed of, of genetic engineering of, of foods was after the discovery of this bacterium that's natural in the soil, it's uh, called agrobacterium, back in the early 1970s, they discovered that it, you know, it causes these galls in plants. It would infect plants and cause galls, and it does this by transferring its own DNA into the plant and, and harnessing the plant's DNA. And scientists discovered how to do that, how to, how to harness that. And I remember as an undergraduate, I was in class at UC Davis in 1975, and the professor came in very excited one day and, you know, announced this, this discovery that they had discovered this agrobacterium and then how, and, and that they could uh, effectively disarm it. In other words, it wouldn't, you know, get it to not cause these galls and they could transfer DNA from this bacterium, the DNA that they had put into the bacterium and transfer it into the, into the plant. So that was the beginning of, of genetic engineering. And since then, three major things have happened that have led to the situation that we have today, this, this ordinarily dysfunctional situation. One was the early decisions by, by the U.S. Patent Office for the patenting of genes, that they, they allowed patenting of, of life. How did that happen exactly, Don? Well, there was a court case, a Supreme Court case in 1980, Diamond versus Chakrabarty, which really was the watershed event that, that allowed the patenting of these genes, and that was the watershed event there. Yeah. Then uh, another thing happened that was really important to science, and that was in 1980, the... Uh, the Bayh-Dole Act, okay, Bob Dole and Birch Bayh, they, they got uh, legislation signed in the Senate or in the legislature for, uh, to restructure the, uh, the way universities uh, are funded and, and made them essentially more dependent on industry. And so in the, 20, in the years since then, it has, uh, this has had an enormous influence, and it really, what it did was uh, it caused scientists to have to go to industry, to be dependent on industry. And we've seen the, the effects of that. There, there were many warnings that this would, 
lead to uh, comp, you know serious compromises, and the worst fears of many of these early scientists uh, have come true with this. And then the third thing that that happened was the the Reagan administration and the first Bush administration completely abdicated on regulation. In other words, they they allowed the this genetic engineering of foods and the approval process for these foods to go onto the market to be almost completely unregulated. And those three things were really the key factors in leading to the, the current situation where scientists, U.S. scientists have just not been able to get a grasp on this issue and, and, and get on top of it. It's been pretty much dominated by the corporations that, um, that produce these transgenic foods. And these corporations really developed successful method of, of getting into the very top of the U.S. federal regu- regulatory agencies like the, the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA. That's right, the revolving uh, door. The revolving door, which is, which is where you have a door between the highest executive levels of the biotechnology companies and the, or, or industry in, in general and the top uh, management, the top positions in the regulatory agencies. And they were extraordinarily successful in, in doing that. Now, what happened is now, 25 years later, we have this extremely dysfunctional and flawed products which were never adequately looked at. And th- so this is all coming back to bite the industry and the scientists very seriously because they didn't do the homework. They ignored the, there were scientists at the FDA and in universities that, who warned that these products should not be approved for market. We need to do more research on this, this revolutionary new, uh, this, this radically new technology of, of gene splicing, of genetic engineering. And I, these I, warnings were ignored. Yeah. And so uh, well, we have the situation. And and I just want to interject here, you know, when we talk about transgenics or biotechnology, that the concern that I've heard you express has to do with the food plant biotechnology, not the pharmaceutical biotechnology, as long as we keep these genetically modified seeds and crops uh, a, under confinement, where the pollen isn't allowed to contaminate non-GMO fields, um, and also right. the, the issue with regard to who owns this technology. Is it publicly owned, or is it owned by the, the corporation that continuously charges the farmer more money, and it kind of serves to gag the scientists who are dependent on the funding who maybe want to raise a red flag. Yeah, yeah. let me address those two points, uh, two different points. One is the, um, in my paper, I, I maintain that industrial and pharmaceutical transgenics are, uh, should be continued, basically. And, and pharmaceutical, well, basically because bacterial uh, transgenics or bacterial genetic engineering has been pretty successful. Plants are a completely different thing and you get the production of these rogue proteins novel proteins but in pharmaceutical in, in crops that they've developed they've genetically engineered corn rice and, and different crops to produce medicines those they're producing a single compound you isolate that compound out 
you throw away the rest of the plant, destroy it or whatever, that has the rogue proteins, the, the allergens, whatever, plus the, D, the, the DNA that can hop from one thing to another. And you isolate out the medicine. Okay, so you've grown that crop in a greenhouse, in a biosafe greenhouse. If that is how they need to produce some of our medicines, then I have, you know, I maintain that that's all right. As long as it's done in biosafe greenhouses and as long as they're isolating out that single compound, purifying it, and the dispensing it uh, using, uh, uh, you know, prescriptions. Okay, mm -hmm. so the risks there are fairly normal. And this, I think, leaves most of the genetic engineering industry intact. Okay, so food transgenics are only, you know, a, a part, actually, I think a minority, you know, a smaller proportion of the entire industry. So I'm not rejecting the entire tra transgenics industry, and that's really important. Right. Um, because I think we could all be benefiting from those medicines someday. Right. Now, the other point that you made, are there any questions on that one point? No, I, I think that that's clear that yeah. Bacterial transgenics and the production of single compounds, which are different from food. Right. Food is has hundreds, you know, like a tomato or a grape or a grain of wheat has hundreds of compounds, and the consumer eats normally eats the whole thing, and so we're getting, you know, we don't know what we're getting from those mutations that were caused right. in genetic engineering process. And I think the allergenicity piece, the fact that we've got these new or novel proteins forming and we have no idea how they may be interacting with our bodies and the fact that these plants are not being grown in a biosafe greenhouse, but just out in the wild, out in the open, uh, creates yeah. real concern for me. Yeah. Now, the other issue you brought up is really important. It's maybe the most important message that I have, and that is that the, uh, we talked about agroecology. Those solutions that, that we provide in agroecology are not patentable, and we, yet we need the research money to, to develop these agroecological solutions. And when we get that research money, we can generally show that we can compete with the private industry solution, the chemical solution, the genetically engineered solution, we can show that our that the crops can yield just as much, about probably more than half the time. And yet, that private the, those proprietary solutions, at the, you know, being developed in universities, are getting most of the funding, the federal funding, in addition to the private investment. So it's really important for people to understand that. It, that we need non we need research to be done on these non proprietary solutions that research that doesn't get investment from private industry and so, these solutions can compete and they should be sort of on this market to compete with the proprietary solutions so sometimes uh, in in medicine and health this is going to be the biggest area where we need research done on different things like it, there may be a compound that comes from a plant that they have to only manipulate a little bit change a little bit and it becomes a very effective medicine well if 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 it can't be patented then we don't get that solution doesn't get investment by private industry well we need our universities and our our health research industry to 
uh, or a health research science scientist to be able to get money, research money, to develop that as a solution. And then that becomes, you know, a medicine that costs maybe 1% or 2% of, what, of the pharmaceutical. And it may be more effective than the pharmaceutical. So it sounds uh, like sometimes. what we so, need to do is talk to our legislators and advocate yeah. perhaps do we want to roll back the Bayh-Dole Act, which really set... Yeah, we need to restructure. We need the Obama administration to get on top of this and restructure the way our universities are funded. It's a very difficult time to start that with the economic downturn. Right, but, right. You know, we, we, you know, citizens are losing out. If, if most of, if doctors, if you come to a, go to a doctor and you have a problem and the only solutions that they have learned about from the journals and all the research and the meetings that they go to are these $10,000 a year, $20,000 a year pharmaceuticals when in Denmark or in, in Italy they've developed you know, they, they've found a plant, a plant that can produce a medicine that costs less than 1% of that, and it is just as effective, you see. They need to know about that. You know, our, our doctors need to know about that. Don? And so that is the same, same thing applies in agriculture. We need to be able to develop those non, those are called non-proprietary solutions. In other words, they, they're not private property, they're not patentable. Well, Don, uh, we have a half-hour show, and our half-hour is up. Okay. And I I feel I'd really love to have you back on because there's so much more that we need to discuss, a wealth of information. In the meantime, I want to um, let people know that your research is available online at www.donlotter.net. That's D-O-N-L-O-T-T-E-R.net. Don, for the sake of, of time, I just want to quickly thank you again for being on with us and thank our listeners for tuning in. Thank you. Thank you very much. This program is brought to you by listener support and a donation from the Missouri Symphony. Hot Summer Nights plays on with the piano, one and two, at the Missouri Theater Center for the Arts. Pianist Gleb Ivanoff joins the Missouri Symphony Orchestra for two distinct concerts, each with its own repertoire, on Friday, July 17th and Saturday, July 18th. Tickets and more info are available at motheater.org or at 573-875-0600. To pre-register for the KOPN July 19th fundraising auction, please call 573-874-1139 between the hours of 10 a.m. and 4 p.m. July 13th through the 17th. Or, on Saturday, call to make an early bid and pre-register. That's on July 18th between 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. The auction itself takes place 1.30 to 7.30 p.m. July 19th. Bid on something you need like a haircut or an eye exam and support your community radio station, KOPN.